Welcome to the RYR Endurance Team Podcast. We are grateful that you've chosen to tune in and listen. If you are a runner, aspiring runner, triathlete, or aspiring triathlete, you are in the right place. We love sharing what we know about these sports. If you like what you hear, you can always learn more by contacting us at ryrcoach at gmail.com or by visiting our website, ryrenduranceteam.com. Hey, if you enjoy our podcast, please do us a favor. Give us a five-star review and subscribe to our podcast. This helps others find us. Thanks for listening. Good afternoon, Coach Roberts. Well, good afternoon, Coach Roberts and wife of mine. Did you have a good day? It's been a wonderful day. I got up this morning at a reasonable time, did a lot of exercising, trying to be proactive, and then I went for a bike ride while our son Jacob did a simulation run for his upcoming half marathon, and that worked out pretty well. He was quite fast in his Nike Next Percents. I had a aid station set up for him. I noticed you had an aid station set up for him. Well, you had already taken care of all your nutrition. <laughs> but as he was coming through the aid station, as happens quite often in races, he missed it. Oh. He came through and he tried to grab a cup and it ended up on the ground. He's been watching Kipchoge. Yeah. So he made a little loop around the street and came back to practice going through the aid station again and was able to get one cup without knocking the rest of them off. It's quite easy in a race when volunteers are not handing out the hydration. If you don't slow down, to just grab one and just clear the whole table off. (laughs) That's not very good for the rest of the participants. No. I feel a little bit sorry for you over the next couple weeks. Why is that? Well, you've got a wife and a daughter and a son and several athletes who are all going into taper. And you know how type A athletes can be during a taper. Yeah, you got to get your nutrition right. you got to go to bed at the right time. All the things. But <laughs> you've got a well-documented race plan. It's been tested. Now it's just a matter of executing. Speaking of executing, I feel like I executed my coach's workout today very well. Well, tell me about it. I haven't looked at in training peaks yet. Okay, so it was an hour, easy, and then it was the next 50 minutes, negative split. Like the first 10 minutes, a little bit harder than what my easy pace was, up to the fourth of five of those 10 minutes was supposed to be hitting my marathon pace. And then the fifth one, supposed to really dig down and find my half marathon pace. So I was a little bit nervous going into this workout, but felt awesome. That's great. And your racing shoes worked out well and your nutrition worked out well? They did. And Kelly and I were just ran the whole thing together. We both felt strong. She was able to test her new racing shoes as well. We tested our nutrition again and add a little bit more sodium to it this week. So I felt like that was good because, you know, the weather's warming up a little bit. Yeah, good plan. Yeah, so I felt good about that. Coming off of a week, I had Ellie-Ann, our granddaughter, three days in a row, and she had a little incident in our closet. So she's still learning to walk, and she walks all over the place as long as she is holding on to my finger. But as soon as she lets go of my finger, she just kind of stand still until I give her my little index finger again. But she was walking great in our closet. She was holding on to your clothes as she was going along. And you know your clothes hanging on hangers aren't providing any support, but she just had something in her hand, so felt like she was walking. So I got the awesome idea that that needed to be documented on a video. And <laughs> as soon as I got the video going, she leaned forward into my rack of clothes, which are perpendicular to your rack of clothing, and she just went, boom, face first. Right onto your wetsuit that's stretched out underneath your clothes on the closet floor. Yeah, fortunately I have two wetsuits down there, so it was a nice, bouncy, rubberized <laughs> landing, and I kind of teased and said, boom, and she said, she just laughed, and she just bounced right up. No worse for the wear. No, so I'll post that video in our closed Facebook group so 
any of our listeners want to see the funniest video ever of the sweetest baby girl in the world, you'll have to search our Wilder Endurance team and join our group. Sounds great. Yep. So in this podcast, we're going to be discussing hydration. Today's the first day of spring. The temperature's warming up. You need hydration year-round, but especially as the weather warms up. So joining us today is going to be Dr. Scott Black, who specializes in lifestyle and sports medicine at Owensboro Health. Dr. Black is also the co-founder of Sword Performance. That's awesome. And I was just reading about him prepping for this podcast 10 minutes before we started recording and I found out he has a lot of knowledge on nutrition as well so I almost want to hijack the podcast and not talk only about hydration but we'll probably run out of time so anyway I'm very excited to have Dr. Scott Black. Yeah and he's an endurance athlete as well. Yes. Welcome Scott. Glad to have you on the podcast today. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I knew we were going to talk about hydration and sword. And then as I did some research, I realized that you are a doctor and what my passion is. Like I read anything and everything I can find on nutrition. And I feel like I really turned a corner with my athletic competition ability when I got my nutrition better. So I may throw in some, (laughs) pick your brain about some (laughs) nutrition information because it's, this is so exciting to me that that's your field. I love to talk about nutrition. I, I think you know, there, there's a couple areas people just constantly mess up. Nutrition's one, recovery's one, and then intensity is the other one. They just, everybody's always exercising at the wrong intensity. And they don't look good on Strava. It's still saying the slow days are too fast and the fast days are too slow. And you got to get that in, you got to get the pace right. And if you don't, then you don't, you don't improve. I agree. I agree. Yeah. So let's get started by just having you tell us a little bit about your athletic background and your current training. Okay. Well, um, athletic background, I played about all the traditional sports growing up and uh, got into college and was not playing any organized sports at that time. And like a lot of people, I put on the freshman 15 or 20. My freshman year of college, I went to Tulane, so I went to New Orleans. There's a lot of good food in New Orleans and other things you can get into might make you gain weight. And I did. So I better do something about that. And I started running. I really hadn't done much distance running before that. I started running, found that I enjoyed it. And uh, since then, I've been a runner. So that started when I was 18. I'm 56 now. And I've, I've run every almost uh, every day of every year since then. Wow. You got a pretty good streak going. Well, I'm not not that kind of a streak. That's almost every day of every week. So oh, I, 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 yeah, I haven't. So you're not on the official streak website. No, 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 no. I'm not, I'm not that regular. <laughs> but uh, I've you know I have to do it on a fairly regular basis to to feel normal. On the Drink Sword website, I believe it said you run a sub three hour marathon. Tell us about that. I was on the the Kentucky National Guard marathon team and. We always had the, the national competition, national championships in Lincoln, Nebraska. And one of the years that I ran on the team, I ran a sub three hour marathon in Lincoln, qualified for Boston. That's probably, I guess, to date my best, if you think about competitive accomplishment or athletic accomplishment, was being able to go under three in a marathon. It's 258.40. I still remember it. Nice. So did you travel to Boston? So, you know, I didn't do it then. And then about almost 10 years ago now, I decided I wanted to give it another shot. So I qualified for Boston again and, and finally got up there and ran Boston. I didn't run a sub three hour again, though. That, I'd have a hard time doing that now. So what year was that? Do you recall? It was, yeah, it was around uh, 2012, 2013. Okay. It depends. What Did you get a blue or a yellow shirt? That'll tell you if it was an odd or an even year. <laughs> I got a yellow shirt. It was an odd so, year. So it must have been okay. 13. Yeah, and it was before they had the bombing. So it might have been. When, when was the, the bombing? You remember? I don't. About 15 or so. But, but I think 2012 was a heat wave. Okay. It wasn't the heat wave year. So okay. I bet it was 13. And 2011 was the last time I went and there was a tailwind the whole way. It was awesome. Uh, Ryan Hall ran his, his 203. Okay. So that was not the year I did it. So it must've been 13. Yeah. I also saw that you have run a hundred mile race. So I, I ran Tunnel Hill 100, Steve Durbin's race that he puts on out in Southern Illinois, 
I did that a couple of years ago and I've run the 50 several times. And then I decided one time to try the hundred and I did that one. It's a great race. It's a long distance. Oh yeah. So my furthest race is a marathon, but I've been toying with the idea of going to Tunnel Hill and doing at least the 50. I would highly recommend it. I mean, it's a well done race. It's a great course. If you're really interested in, in doing something longer than a marathon, it's a great first one to do. 50K is not that much longer than a marathon, so it's not that much of a step up. 50 miles is a difference, oh, but yeah. it's doable. And if, if you're trained up and can run a marathon, you can run 50 miles. You just got to slow down a little bit. Yeah. But it, it's, it's, it's a really well-done race with good support, and I think you'd enjoy it. Yeah, and you have to fuel properly. You do have to fuel properly. Yeah. So what's harder, a sub-three-hour marathon or completing 100 miles? They're both hard for different reasons, but I think it's harder to run a sub three marathon. Yeah, it just, it just it, it's a it's a different kind of exertion. You're, you're having to put out a high level of effort for a longer period of time. For a long period of time, obviously, in a hundred miles, you're doing a longer period of time. But a lot of that's at least for me was walking. I did a lot of walking in that race, and you know, it, it's it's a different kind of stress on your body. Well, I tell people all the time that my Boston qualifying marathon was much more difficult than my Ironman, and people don't believe me. I believe you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's true. Mm-hmm. A marathon's a unique distance, mm-hmm. you know, and if, if you're going to race it, it's really a unique distance because you're running on the edge the whole time. And if you mess up your nutrition or if you mess up your pace and are going too hard, you're going to crash and burn at some point. And if it's too hot and you're going too fast, same thing's going to happen. You're going to crash and burn at some point. So you really have to know what you're doing to race and do well in a marathon. Right. That was a mistake I made. The first time I went to Boston in 2009, it was my second marathon, and I was all excited. I was in the in the first corral right there with the elite athletes, just right behind the elite athletes. And, and decided to run with them. Yeah, and those first six miles are just a slight downhill. I was on fire. I was going to shock the world that day until I got to about to the 10K mark. The only thing he shocked was his quads. Anyway, it was it was a long rest of the race, but I learned from that mistake and ran much better in 2011. That is the same thing I did in my first marathon. I'd never run anything that long. I'd run a half and thought that was pretty easy so I could step up to a full. And I tried to run the, the, the marathon at about the same pace I ran the half marathon and did really well for the first 20. <laughs> and then the, the last 6.2, I didn't think I'd get through. It took me... A long time to finish that race, but I finished it. Yeah. So you said you played all the sports. So you played football. I saw on your website that you're a Miami Dolphins fan. I I happen to be as well. Again, growing up, uh, when I was a kid, you know, that was the the heyday of the Dolphins. And Bob Greasy was a quarterback and Larry Zonkin, Mercury Morris, and of course, Shula with coach. Just a fantastic team. And, you know, only undefeated team to win the Super Bowl. Oh, I knew that was coming. Oh, yeah. Of course. I hear that all the time. <laughs> it, and it's been kind of slim picking since then, but uh, they they have had a few good years, you know, when Dan Marino was down there since then. But uh, <laughs> I, I would like to see them get back to their glory days. Yeah, me too. I, I think they're moving in the right direction, but I, I was surprised this week they, uh, they released Ryan Fitzpatrick. He's going to Washington, so... I thought he played great for the Dolphins. Well, I think they're putting their money on Tua. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. <laughs> well, changing the subject. <laughs> Moving right along. Since I'm a Cowboys fan, of course, they uh, haven't been any better lately either. So <laughs> just switching gears a little bit, if you want to tell our listeners a little bit about your uh, education and your profession. Okay. So um, when I went through college, I really I wanted to be a doctor. And I grew up in a small town and my idea of a doctor was a small town family doctor. And that's what I always wanted to do, even from being a kid and uh, went through UK and went to medical school at UK and then went into family medicine residency and uh, got interested in sports medicine during my residency. But about the time I was ready to graduate, hometown called me up, the hospital there called me up and said, we really need some doctors down here. Why don't you come back and, um, and, and we'll help you get your practice set up and get going. So I, I went home and ended up practicing there and I worked, did some sports medicine, worked with a, a small college in southeastern Kentucky for several years. And that really got me kind of hooked in sports medicine more than ever. After I had been in 
practice for about 12 years, I decided to, to take us to step away and, and do a, a sports medicine fellowship. So I kind of did it backwards. Most people do it right after residency, but I practiced a while first. And once I finished that fellowship, that kind of had me hooked completely. And I decided to do full-time sports after that. And I got into academic medicine, worked at UofL and UK. And one story, I mean, one thing led to another, ended up doing more administrative work over the last five or six years and got to the point I really was missing clinical medicine. Started looking around for clinical opportunities and ended up in Owensboro. So I've been very happy with uh, with the town and with the hospital system here and happy to be here. Well, awesome. Uh, happy I guess I forgot, forgot to say that um, when I started practice, again, back in, in hometown, I, do, I was doing traditional family medicine and I was doing the kind of sports extra. And it really dawned on me quickly that most of my patients had things that were related to what they were eating and how little they were moving and whether or not they were smoking. So I got really interested in kind of this lifestyle side of medicine. And that's when I also went back and got a graduate degree in exercise physiology and also got a graduate certificate in sports nutrition just after that. So I was trying to incorporate that into my practice even way back then. That's awesome. So I I saw also on your website that you have worked with a Boston Marathon winner. Can you tell us about that? Sure. You know, one of the, the best things about sports medicine and, and my work with SWORD has been the opportunity to meet some really wonderful people. And when I was working at UofL, I got to become pretty good friends with somebody that was on their track and cross country program, uh, Wesley Career. And if you look at UofL records and accomplishments on the track and field team, you can you can Google him and you're going to find a lot. He was an outstanding, outstanding runner. They were a Big East team at that time, and, and he was an outstanding Big East runner. Um, we became friends, and and after and I could tell at that point he was just different than every other runner on the team and, and most of the other runners in the in the NCAA. I knew he was destined for great things. We became friends, and I kept up with him afterwards, and he started running professionally. His debut marathon was Chicago, and this was when he was just coming out of his amateur career, and he called up there and said, you know, I'd like to get an elite entry to Chicago, and they kind of poo-pooed him because they didn't know who he was. And uh, they let him come up and enter, but they wouldn't let him start with the elites. He had to start in the in the next corral. And he he ran down a number of the elites in that race. So and he, he finished high in the standings. And, and following that, he went on and he won the L.A. Marathon a couple of times. He's running the Olympics and, and he's won the Boston Marathon. He's one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet, too. Very humble, uh, very grounded. And uh, just just a really solid person and a really solid runner. And and he's he he does some he he's now he's he's developing other Kenyan athlete runners. He has a program that he's helping people develop their running skills. So he lives in Kenya now. He he lives part time in Kenya and part time in Canada. He mm-hmm. ended up marrying um, a woman who was on the the cross country team and track team at U of L also, and, and they have a couple of uh, children. And they um, she she's from Canada. And so they live part time in Canada and he was in he was elected to parliament in Kenya. And so part of the time he was he was having to spend in Kenya as a as a member of parliament. So now he's through with his political career and he's he's back. And I think he's living more of the time in Canada. now. Yeah, that's awesome. Really interesting guy. A lot of experiences, you know, just a really uh, rich history of experience. And he's, he's a great guy to talk to. He'd be good to have on your podcast sometime. That's what I was thinking. Maybe you can hook us up. That connection. Would love to meet him. That's awesome. I'd be happy to see what I could do. I think you'd you'd love to meet him. Yeah. So I want to initially, when we reached out, we were going to talk about hydration and we're going to start there. But later we might loop back around and talk a little bit about nutrition. But just kind of focusing on hydration to begin with is everybody here is you need to drink more water. You need to drink more water. Why is hydration so important? Well, hydration is important for a a number of reasons. And it's also one of those things that that people frequently get wrong. They often underhydrate, they often overhydrate. So trying to get the the right amount of hydration is what's, what's really important. Think about your blood pressure and think about what happens when your blood pressure gets too low. You feel dizzy, you feel lightheaded, you feel really bad. If you have been sitting for a long time and you suddenly stand up real fast and you feel woozy and like you're going to pass out, that's your blood pressure getting too low. Your body's trying to adjust to gravity and it, it may take a few seconds after you stand up to do that. But part of what maintains your, your blood pressure is the amount of fluid that you have in your blood vessels. And as we become dehydrated, 
we have less and less and less fluid to go around. So we have less fluid in our blood vessels and that may adversely affect our blood pressure. It can also adversely affect our body's ability to cool itself. Because you think about as you're, as you're running, you're generating heat. If you're in hot weather, you gotta do something to, to manage the heat. And look at your skin, what happens? It gets red and flushed. That's because a lot of the, uh, the blood is being directed out to your skin where it kind of works as a radiator. It picks up heat from the working muscles and it carries it out to your skin. And then that heat's radiated out of your body or it's evaporated out of your body by sweat. So if, if you don't have enough blood to go around, you're trying to feed the muscles, you're trying to feed the brain, and you're trying to radiate heat, then bad things are going to happen. You're going to start feeling really bad. It's going to affect your performance. And your brain's pretty smart. It's thinking, I got to take care of myself, so I'm going to shut something down. And what it starts shutting down are your muscles. And so your performance starts suffering. So you got to have the right amount of hydration. On the opposite end, you can overhydrate. And if you overhydrate, you're drinking way too much, then you can have some, some problems as well. And people have talked about low sodium and hyponatremia. That can occur from overhydration. So it's really about getting the right amount of fluids in during a race. So as you're talking about getting the right amount, that was where we were going next. Do you have any insights on what is the right amount? Most people would agree now that you should, you should really pay attention to your thirst and drink when you're thirsty, and you don't necessarily have to drink if you're not thirsty, up to probably the marathon distance for most people. Once you start getting past marathon, I, I think it becomes important that you plan your, your drinking and you plan your nutrition a little more closely, because if you're going to be in a race for 24 hours or so, your thirst is not always a really good indicator of your hydration status. And you got to be really careful that you don't underhydrate but equally careful that you don't overhydrate. So it's, it's important to know kind of what your, your fluid loss rate is over that period of time and how you can reasonably expect to replace that. Marathon or less, I think you can just kind of, you can go by thirst and you can really use, I think, you know, we, we all talk about it during a marathon, you really try to get in carbohydrate to maintain high work output and you can use fluid as your source of carbohydrate. And so you try to match that. That's what I try to do is just make sure I'm getting enough carbohydrate in my fluid and usually if we do that, your fluid balance comes out, your water balance comes out okay. So just kind of following up on that, sometimes, and I don't really know why I do this, just out of curiosity, sometimes I'll weigh before a hard training session and then weigh afterward just to see uh, if I'm doing a good job and like there's a certain weight range, I try not to lose more than. Is there a like a scientific percentage that you would say make sure if, you're losing more than this amount of weight in a training session that you do more or yeah, people, people will debate that a little bit, but I think most people accept that losing 2% or less won't affect your performance. And if you lose more than 2% of your body weight, then that might affect your performance in hotter weather. It's more likely to affect your performance than in cooler weather because of what we talked about earlier, it becomes more difficult to cool your body. So you know, if you're running in a, in a really hot, humid race, it's, I think it's more important that you watch your hydration more carefully and you try not to lose excess weight. If it's a cooler race, then you, you may be able to tolerate a little more heat stress or you may not have as much heat stress, so it may not be quite as important. And I guess hotter and cooler is kind of relative to what you're acclimated to? or To some extent, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Look at, at marathon performances, race performances, and, and people have done this. You can Google it, marathon race performance and different temperatures or in heat. And people have plotted race performance in different marathons and like winning times in different marathons with similar runners, but in different conditions. And there's no question that heat slows people down. You know, if you look at finishing times in a hot race versus finishing times in a cool race where the courses are otherwise about the same and the quality of the runners is about the same. Heat stress slows people down. You just can't go as hard. And if you're going to try to manage that, one of the things you have to do is really try to manage your hydration well. So that reminds me of a story. I don't know if you're familiar with the 1982 Boston Marathon, the duel in the sun between Alberto Salazar and Dick Beardsley. So as the story goes, the two guys, and Bill Rogers was there too, but I guess he fell off the pace. But it was a hot day in the 70s. And apparently back then they didn't really have formal aid stations. It's just, if you wanted something to drink, you just 
grab something from a bystander who was generously holding something out. But uh, supposedly Dick Beardsley was grabbing water along the way and drinking some, pouring it on his head. But Salazar didn't drink anything the whole race. And it came down to a sprint finish and Salazar ended up winning. But rumor has it that he was just never the same after that. And his body temperature at the finish line was recorded at 107. That sounds deadly. That's hot. And it's a good example of a really good athlete can still put in a really good performance and still be overheated and really dehydrated. I mean, had he hydrated properly during that race, it might not have had to come down to a sprint finish. He might have pulled away earlier. You know, you just don't know that. People will will sometimes use that race as an example that hydration is not that important. But I, I think that that's not an accurate portrayal of what that means. You know, he, he did well despite being pretty profoundly dehydrated. And part of that's just, you know, if anybody's read much about Salazar knows how much of an iron will he had. He willed himself to win that race. And I think that says a lot about his, just his fortitude that he could do that and be that dehydrated and that hot. Yeah, that's a lot like somebody breaking their femur in a marathon. And, and, running, and running through it? Yeah, Still finishing. Don't encourage him. (laughs) (laughs) Some people can just, you know, they can just get in the zone and go. Well, we try to, uh, back to what you're talking about with Salazar, we try to tell our athletes because sometimes in a hard training session, they may skip some nutrition or whatever and said they were fine. But I think it not only affects that training session, it's going to affect your training session a few days down the road as well. So staying on top of it seems to be the smarter approach. Yeah, I think so. And the other thing that that nutrition, if you're really watching your nutrition, not just water intake, but the carbohydrate intake when you're exercising, I mean, anybody that's exercised hard and try to take in nutrition knows that your stomach's not always really happy with that. But you can train your stomach just like you train your lungs and your heart and your muscles. So practicing nutrition good nutrition during the, during a training run or a training ride or whatever you're doing can help you perform better race day because it gets your, your stomach, your gut to tolerate the, the carbohydrate and the fluid better. You know, not every run, not every ride has to be done well hydrated and well fueled. Some people are doing depletion runs and fasted runs and, and those may have a part, but also some of your training must be or should be, it's not must, but should be in a state where you're practicing hydration and practicing nutrition during the, during the, the, the run or the, or the ride. Yeah, my most recent marathon was in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And was it September? September. September of 2020. And I thought I'd practice my nutrition, but on race day, I couldn't get, I couldn't get any of it down. And so I, my, I paid for it. You know, my toes were <laughs> cramping under my, in my shoes. And, but I, I knew I needed to get it down. It just, it was not happening. And I felt I'd train for it, but just have those days. It was, was it a hot day or? It was just, warmer than what I'd been training, but it wasn't hot per se. Heat the challenge to your stomach and pace is a challenge to your stomach. Mm-hmm. And that's why marathon's so hard. You're trying to run hard. You're trying to race. Yet you're going to run out of fuel if you don't take in some fuel. So it's in, in training, you don't want to strike that match too early. So you don't test your gut at that intensity. So it's, it's definitely a puzzle to put together. That is why the marathon is such a great distance. Mm-hmm. Anything short of 30K or so, you really and truly don't have to fuel. I mean, you've got enough carbohydrates stored in your muscle and stored in your liver that you will get to the end of a hard effort up to about 30k without hitting the wall and most people should uh, once you get beyond that if you're really pushing yourself and you're really racing you're gonna run out of carbohydrate mm-hmm. and you just have to fuel and I know people that are doing the ketogenic stuff say well you know we don't have to worry about that but I don't think you can get the same power output as you can if you're if you're a well-trained well-fueled carbohydrate based athlete so if you're really racing and it's something that marathon or less, uh, you know, I, I, I'm still a believer that, that carbohydrates are the way to go and you have to fuel during the race. So do you think that that limit on when you need fuel and when you don't is based off of distance or based off of time? Uh, that, that's a good question. And 
I think it's based off it's based off a combination of effort and time. Mm-hmm. And you know, for instance, if you're looking at you know as you as you run farther and farther and farther, you have to kind of cut down to a little less intensity relative to your VO2 max. So if if I'm going to run, let's say I'm going to run a marathon, and I might be able to run 85 to 88% of my VO2 max if I'm trained. And I may be able to hold that over the course of the marathon, but that may take me four hours to finish. Where an elite runner might be able to step up to maybe 90% of their VO2 max if they're running, maybe 92 if they're really good. So they're not running at that much greater percentage of their VO2 max than I am. So our, our fuel use may be about the same, but they're going to finish in a little over two hours. And I'm, I'm going to be out there for two more hours at almost the same relative exertion. So I'm going to have a lot more trouble with fueling, I think, than they are. And so I think sometimes people miss that, that the, you know, us middle and back of the pack folks have a, a bigger uh, fueling challenge sometimes if we're really pushing ourselves and really racing than, than the really good runners, the elites. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Because we're, we're, I mean, we're out there working. You know, we're not using as much energy as they are, but relative to what we can use, we're using almost as much. Right. And we're doing it for much longer. So, Paula, you talked about uh, weighing yourself before and after a run. Uh, Scott, are there some other ways that we can can measure how well we're staying hydrated? Well, I, I think weighing yourself before and after a run gives you an idea of your fluid loss. I think it's a great way to do it. So I'd encourage people to do that. Most of that fluid loss is going to be sweat. So you'll know, you know what your sweat rate is. And then you just have to make an educated guess about race day. If, if race day is a little cooler and if the humidity is a little lower, then you might not sweat as much, but more than likely your running intensity is going to be a little bit higher. So that may offset that. If race day is warmer and race day is more humid, you may have to expect to lose more fluid because you're going to be running a little bit harder and you're going to be keyed up and just being nervous. You're going to sweat a little bit more because of that too. So once you've kind of established your sweat rate, pay attention to the, what were the environmental conditions when you, when you figured it out. And then you had to compare that to race day and make an educated guess. Looking at day-to-day hydration, just the color of your urine is a good way to do it. What's your urine output? Is your urine, is it dark yellow or is it clear? Now, if you're taking vitamins and a bunch of supplements, that really messes up your that. But if you're not taking a bunch of vitamins and supplements, you can look at your urine and, and see, make a pretty good guess how, how well hydrated you are. It shouldn't be clear. shouldn't be straw colored. Have you heard anything about some companies developing patches that you could wear that would try to detect your hydration level based on the sweat that's being absorbed? Yeah, people have looked at doing a number of different things and not only just looking at your hydration level, but also looking at what electrolytes you're losing in your sweat. You know, some people are are, are known as really salty sweaters and some people are not. So, if, and you've seen this in races, you'll, you'll run by somebody and usually it's a guy that's just, he just caked in, in salt. You can just see it. It's in his clothes, it's in his, on his face and his hair. He's one of those just really salty sweaters. So he tur- he tends to lose a lot of sodium, a lot of chloride, a lot, a lot of electrolytes in his sweat. Those really salty sweaters may, I have to say may, may be at greater risk of some, uh, some problems like low uh, blood sodium or, or, or muscle cramping. And people argue that whether that means much or not, but I think that there probably is some, that, that's a legitimate concern for some people. So one of our athletes, when I occasionally run with her, like everybody kind of jokes, stay five feet away because her ponytail just sloshes sweat everywhere when the rest of us have not even worked up a sweat yet. Is there a reason for that? Or is that just the way she's made? That's the way she's put together. <laughs> and, you know, and really the more heat acclimatized you are, the more you're going to sweat, you know? So that's what people need to understand is that you will sweat earlier and you'll sweat more as you get used to the heat. It's not the other way around because you know, uh, sweat is your body's way of cooling. It's your body's most effective way of cooling. And if you've practiced a lot in the heat, your body's going to be really good at sweating. So you're going to lose more fluid if you're well heat acclimatized. Now you're going to manage the heat stress better, but at the same time, you're going to lose more fluid. And so it would be, she would probably need to take in more hydration. So it would be good for her to weigh before and after and really get an, an accurate estimate of, of what her sweat rate is. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you just, you, you step on the scales before you finish your run. Now, if you got a 
bunch of wet clothes on, they got to come off because that's that weighs something. So you got stripped down a little bit, weigh again. And then you look at that difference divided by the time of the run. So, you know, if you lost two pounds in an hour, then you, you sweat two pounds in an hour and, and that's about a liter. That's kind of the way to, to think about it. Right. You know, your sweat rate for that, those conditions about a liter an hour. Right. You were talking about as you acclimate to the heat, we encourage our athletes, but we also practice it as well. Just if your race conditions are going to be a lot different, a lot hotter than your training conditions, wear some extra clothes or I know I've spent some time in the sauna at the local health club after a long run, I'll go spend some time in the sauna. Do you feel like that's a, a good way of preparing for those hot conditions to prepare your body for what's to come? Yeah, I, I think that's a reasonable thing to do. If you, if you don't have access to environmental heat, then sometimes you got to create your own. And I, you know, sauna is particularly hot. I don't know if it's a great idea to exercise in a sauna. I know people have set up trainers and things in saunas. I'm not sure that's the greatest idea, but uh, sitting in a sauna and just getting your body used to that kind of heat and wearing a few extra clothes if it's not that hot outside. I don't see anything wrong with that at all. And when he was preparing for Kona, it was going to be very hot for the world championships and the rest of us would be out in our singlets and he'd be layered up and people would be looking at him like, what is he doing? (laughs) But you can take that to an extreme and have too many clothes on and just melt. Absolutely. And, you know, you, you have to be very careful with that because heat stress is, is truly dangerous. I mean, heat, heat stroke is nothing to take for granted. That's a very serious medical condition. Something people can die from a heat stroke. So you have to, you have to be really careful. But assuming you're careful and you're doing the proper amount of heat stress, it, I think it's good training. So I thought of another question. I, I don't remember what you said earlier that made me think of it, but it seems like there was a Runner's World article maybe last year or the year before, that was talking about training your body to not need as much hydration. Do you know anything about any science behind not drinking to train your body? Or maybe that's just a hoax. I don't know any science behind that. There's a, a lot, as, as you all know, a lot of what you're training is your brain as much as anything else. And you're getting yourself accustomed to really to, to, to hurting, to pain and, and to because if you're racing, you're going to feel bad at some point in the race, whether it's a 5K or a marathon or 100 miles. If you're really racing it, you're going to hurt at some point. And so sometimes training a little dehydrated, sometimes training a little low blood sugar, sometimes training when you don't feel the greatest is to me is good because you learn how to grind through that. It's, you got to learn to grind. And if you're going to race, there's a big difference between participating for fun and racing. And if you're going to race and really be competitive, you have to learn how to hurt. You got to learn how to grind. And so So training may be a little dehydrated at times. To me, it'd be okay because you're going to suffer. And in order to to learn to grind, you got to feel that. Our last podcast topic was on know when to hold and know when to fold, knowing the difference. And, and that's one of the problems in a, a rookie or novice runner or cyclist or triathlete. They don't know that. They don't know when this pain is, is an okay pain or this pain is not an okay pain. And sometimes they'll push through the wrong things or sometimes they won't push hard enough when they're hurting a little bit. And with experience, you learn that. The hard way. Yeah, you learn it. Um, most of us have blown up in races and you learn from that. Hopefully you do. Yes. Like your experience at, at Boston. Right. You you learn from it. I learned from it. Yeah. (laughs) Round two was much better. Yeah. So what are the signs if you're overhydrating? Like we may have athletes who often say, hey, when I'm running, I have to stop and go to the restroom. Or like, are there signs that you're overhydrating? Yeah. Of course, the the most obvious sign is one you can't easily do, but you you should never gain weight during a run. So if (laughs) they used to have scales at these ultra marathons and, and they'd actually make people weigh. I think the re- the reason for that was that they didn't want people losing too much weight. They were afraid, oh, you're getting really dehydrated. But at the same time, if you're, if you're running a distance race and you're gaining weight, you should never, ever do that. And that's a, that's a sure sign that you're overhydrated. Mm-hmm. You know, if your, your hands are swelling, your face is puffy. Now, when I run, regardless of my hydration, my hands get puffy. 
you just, I think it's just a run in and you're moving your hands back and forth and the hands are hanging down. So my hands will get a little puffy. So that's not a good sign for me because I can, like my wedding band will be a little tighter at the end of a long run than it will at the beginning. It's not from overhydration. It's just the way it is. But if you feel like you're, you're swelling uh, your, your feet and your hands more than what you would expect during a run, that's not a good sign. If you're getting that real sloshy belly, it may just be that your your gut's upset, or it may be that you're you're pushing the fluid too much. If you feel that fluid and the water sloshing around in your stomach, so be careful with that. Again, if you're drinking beyond thirst, if you're no longer thirsty, then you got to be careful. Thirst is not the greatest sign of hydration or dehydration. But if you're if you're just not thirsty at all, or if if you're feeling nauseated and and just the thought of drinking more water or drinking more sports drink of any kind is, is kind of more nauseating. You just don't think it's going to go down well. Be careful. That may be a sign that you're pushing things too hard. Of course, vomiting, that would be another one. If you're just coming back out, then something's going on. It's not right at that point. So I've been running for a long time. I started in the third grade. And I remember as a young runner, I would develop side stitches occasionally. And I don't know if there was any science behind it, but I, I developed a mindset that I thought I was getting side stitches because I was drinking too much. Is there any relationship between drinking and side stitches? Again, that's a really good question. And to the best of my knowledge, nobody to this day is really completely sure what a side stitch is. Uh, You know, most everybody's had them, but not really sure exactly what it is. So I I can't tell you for certainty if if drinking is associated with it, if dehydration is associated with it. I I don't think anybody's really clear. I wish I did have an answer to that. Yeah, Switching gears a little bit, I think in general, regardless of whether you're an athlete or not, I think people in general are dehydrated. I don't know why I think that, but I just think people just don't think about drinking water. They drink a lot of caffeinated beverages and things like that. But do you have any tips on just daily how to stay well hydrated, properly hydrated? Yeah, I think you, you have to be mindful about it. You have to make a conscious effort because we get busy. Like you'll sit down at a desk and start working on something. And before you know it, four hours have passed and you, you haven't moved. So not only is moving around good for you, but trying to stay properly hydrated is. So, you know, being mindful of it. You see people carrying around jugs of water and things and they can measure how much they're, they're drinking over the course of the day. You don't have to go to that extent. There you go. Now, hold that back up, Dana. <laughs> at, at least being, being mindful that you're trying, you're making an effort to do that. Um, I think is the best way to do it. He's much better at it than I am. And checking your, just when you go to the bathroom, your urine should be fairly clear. It should not be really dark colored. Mm -hmm. How much hydration can you get just through um, like fruits and vegetables and that type of diet? I I think a a significant amount. And uh, depending on the the kinds of fruits and vegetables you take in, but look at watermelon. I mean, it's watermelon for a reason. There's a lot of water in that. So it's, it's really hydrating. So an, another, another good reason to take in a regular supply of fruits and vegetables over the course of the day. They're really good for you. And hydration is one of the reasons they're really good for you. So eat more fruits and vegetables. Everybody could do that. We always um, try to weave our little one-year-old grandbaby into this podcast. And let me just tell you, that baby loves watermelon. <laughs> That's great. Hopefully that'll translate over to other fruits and vegetables. Yeah. She did eat some peas today. She didn't love them, but she ate them. Yeah. That's one thing sometimes you have to learn to love them. <laughs> so Scott, you you talked about sodium and chloride being electrolytes. What are some of the other electrolytes that are important for athletes? Well, you know, people will talk about potassium and magnesium and calcium and those are all important, but you generally can get enough of those through a, a well-rounded, healthy diet. So you don't have to worry about supplementing them or, or replacing them on a regular basis. Um, if, if you're eating fruits and vegetables, you're getting all of those. I love that. And whole grain. So you mentioned calcium being one of the electrolytes. Would you say that endurance athletes need more calcium than a normal person? Probably not. I mean, if you, if you look at the electrolyte composition of sweat, what you're losing on a regular basis, sweat is mainly sodium and chloride. There's a little bit of potassium. There's way less things like calcium, magnesium, zinc, and some other things in sweat. So even if you're sweating a lot, you're not losing that much of those other electrolytes. And if you're eating a healthy, well-rounded diet, you will replace every bit of that in your diet. All right, good to know. 
Yeah, that, that's excellent information. So kind of switching gears again is you were involved in developing the sword hydration. Tell us a little bit about that. What inspired creating that? Why did you want to create your own recipe? So that was, I, I was um, really getting interested in trail running at that time. Um, and as, as you get older and if you're kind of transitioning beyond being competitive or trying to be age group competitive in marathons, you got to find something else to do. So I know I couldn't run faster. So I decided to try to run longer and I got in, I really like trails. So I got interested in trail running. Longer. I don't know how many people actually admit that, but I think that has some truth to it. it. It keeps you healthy longer. You know, I, I haven't had, and since I just finally admitted that I haven't had as many injuries. Yeah. And, um, but, but I got interested in, in longer distance trail running. And at, around that same time, I was working on a, a research project with a PhD student at, at UK. And it was not related to this, but it was a different project. And it was a nutritional supplement project. And we just got, we became friends. And when he graduated, he was looking for something to do. And he wanted, he kind of had an entrepreneurial mindset and he was like to start his own business. So we just started talking and I said, you know, from what I've experienced doing these trail runs, most of the hydration products, I don't think are that good. They're just, there's some that taste pretty good, but if you look at what they're made up of, they, they just, they don't perform very well. And there's others that, that perform better, but they, they taste awful. So there's got to be, this it looks like low hanging fruit. And so we, we just started combing through some of the, the sports medicine literature and looking at what needs to be in a sports drink? What's the, the composition of sweat? How much carbohydrate should you try to take in per hour? And we, we, we just started playing around with different formulas. And we, we came up with, with what we thought was the, the you know, best formula that we, we could, the best compromise of all those different things. And, and we tried several different flavors and came up with, with Sword. Put it to use in a couple of trail races. Just myself, I was, I was kind of the, the guinea pig for it. And I thought it performed really well. So we started sharing it with some friends and, and they thought it performed well. They didn't think it tasted very good. So we had to do something to work on the taste. But again, that was just something we were putting together in the kitchen. And we didn't know much about flavorings and those kind of things at that time. We just, we knew about chemistry, what we wanted in it. And uh, once we had really decided on the backbone, what we thought should be in it, then we went to a professional flavoring company and let them help us put together the final formula to make it taste better. And then we came up with that. Then we came up with sword and we, we started selling it out of the back of our cars and, and we'd go to races and talk to the race directors and uh, ask them if we could donate it to the course. If they'd use it on the course, we get feedback from the runners and then we try to sell it at the races. And one thing led to another and it's just, it's grown from there. What year did you start sword performance? It was around, gosh, it's been, it's around 2014 or so. Yeah. I, you think I should know that exactly, and I could get my records out and see exactly when we started, but it, it was around 14. You may have already addressed this. So how did you choose the optimal ingredients? So um, one of the things we, we wanted to look at was, was carbohydrate intake. You know, how much carbohydrate should you be taking in? And depending on the, the length of the race, you know, people were anywhere from at the low end, 30 to 45 grams an hour is a good idea up to the high end, about 90 grams per hour. If you, if you retrain your gut, practice regularly, you might be able to take in 90 grams of carbohydrate per hour. As you're trying to get that much carbohydrate into a drink, the drink starts to become really sweet or it can, or it can become really kind of syrupy and you gotta be careful with that. So we were trying to find the sweet spot of how much carbohydrate can we get in this, but still make it taste good and make it easy on the stomach. And so we just kind of went with a, a midpoint, about 60 grams of carbohydrate in a liter. We thought, well, if somebody's sweating, an average sweat rate's about a liter or so an hour. We don't want to replace in a lot more than that. So let's try to put 60 grams of carbohydrate in one liter. And so that's how we came up with the carbohydrate amount. And then when we were looking at, at sodium content, salt, we, we were looking at how much salt you lose in sweat. And on average, and there's a wide variety. So people are, there's a, there's a huge variety in this. A lot of variability. But if you look at on average, it's about uh, 750, 800 milligrams of sodium in a liter of sweat. So we were, we were wanted to get in in that ballpark with the amount of sodium because we thought, well, for the average person, if we can replace this, the salt they're losing in the sweat, then maybe that would be beneficial. And then we found some older studies that looked at the salt content of the drink 
versus how it supported your blood volume. Way back when we first started talking, you know, I talked about how important maintaining your blood volume is. And if, if you have, it's kind of like the Goldilocks things. If you don't have enough sodium in the drink, it doesn't support your blood volume very well. And if you have too much sodium in the drink, it actually doesn't support your blood volume very well. So there seems to be a sweet spot somewhere in between. So we tried to get as close to that sweet spot as we could. And, and that's where we came up with, with the salt content. Then we also said, well, you know, the other big challenge, and if you're racing hard, you're running hard, your stomach is, is usually not happy. So whatever you're taking in, you got to make it as easy on your stomach as you possibly can. And one of the things that we felt you could leave out, because the more stuff you have in there, we felt that's going to be harder on your stomach. So one of the things we felt you could leave out were all of the other electrolytes, but you just don't lose that many electrolytes in sweat. So we left out the potassium, we left out the magnesium, we left out the calcium. We really want to replace what you're losing, salt. And then salt has a physiologic effect on your blood volume. So we really wanted to emphasize that. So we have more salt than your average sports drink, but we don't have any other electrolytes. If you're going to run an ultra marathon, if you're going to be taking in nutrition for 24 hours, 36 hours, 48 hours, whatever you're doing, most of those people are eating. And if you're eating, you're getting plenty of the other electrolytes. So even in the longer races, there's really no good evidence that you need anything more than taking in the salt in the beverage. You don't need extra salt tablets. For the most part, you don't need extra electrolytes of any kind. You can do just fine with a salt-containing beverage and food. And so that's, that's kind of how we came up with our rationale for the formula. Enough carbohydrate to give you fuel enough salt to have a physiologic effect in, in the blood vessels and not anything extra to upset your stomach. That, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And then if you, if you need more, then take it by food. You know, if you need more carbohydrate in a race, if you're trying, if you are trying to limit your fluid intake to a liter an hour and you want 90 grams of carbohydrate in an hour, drink a liter of sword and, and take a, a gel with it. Gel's got 25 grams of carbohydrate. There's your 85 grams, almost 90 grams there. So it gives you flexibility to ramp up or ramp down if you need to. So would you say stored as a product design more for hydration or more for nutrition? It was both. And that was the rationale. It, it, it supplies hydration when you need it. And it also supplies nutrition. Because I feel like some of the drinks are so concentrated with carbs, you're not getting any hydration from them. And those are the ones that, you know, when you, when you drink those are, they're really syrupy and you, you kind of taste them in your, in your mouth for 30 minutes after you've had a sip of it. And that, and that is not good if you're trying to race hard because that makes you stick at your stomach. Right. Right. So in addition to sword, you also have a product called shield. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Shield is a, it's a, it's a lower calorie drink. And so we, we've never, we've never promoted sword as anything other than work fuel. And I don't, I don't want people sitting on the couch drinking sword. It's got way too many calories. It's got way too many carbohydrates and it's got way too much salt. It is made for work. If you're working hard, taking in those carbohydrates and taking in that salt is not going to be detrimental to your health. It's going to support the hard work you're doing, but you shouldn't be sitting here talking in a podcast and drinking sword because it's just, it's, it's not made for that. It's, it's not a, it's not intended for that. So we had a number of people that were asking us about, I'm running a 5K or I'm running a 10K and I don't need all the fuel and all the carbohydrates. I don't want all the extra salt, but I don't like drinking water because I just don't like the flavor of water. I need something to encourage me to drink, but I don't want all the extra calories and all the extra salt. And so we tried to sort of take the same philosophy and sword and tone it down into something that doesn't have many calories, doesn't have a lot of carbohydrate and doesn't have a lot of salt in it. And that's where we came up with Shield. It's, it, it's um, only about a 2% carbohydrate or only about 20 grams of carbohydrate per liter. So it's only a third of the carbohydrates in sword and it has, it's low sodium. So if, if you need to be on restricted sodium, it's safer to take in. Yeah. Okay. So it, it's not a product to use in a marathon or an ultra marathon. It's, but if you want something after a 5k and you don't want to, you don't want to put a bunch of calories in, but you want something to kind of refreshing after a 5k, that's what it's for. Or if you want to, if you are sitting on the couch watching television, you want shield. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be as concerned about you drinking shield as, as drinking sword. So are there different flavors? Yeah, there, there are about uh, four or five different flavors of each. So for the sake of our listeners and they want to try after listening to this, I'm sure they will want to try a sword and shield if they're doing less intensity do they go to the local walmart to get it where do they get your product 
it's primarily sold online. It's drinksword.com. I, I guess I have to get on here and advertise a little bit. It's drinksword.com. And, and you can find out nutritional information about it and you can order it directly online. Uh, there are some specialty shops that carry it. I don't know if anybody in Owensboro is at this point in time. Maybe now that I'm here, I can convince someone to carry it. it you can get it in powder form. And then we also have it in ready to drink bottles. We'll have to connect you with Ryan Clark at Legends. That would be great. Maybe I can trade you, uh, getting you in touch with Wesley Career for that. There we go. So do you have any success stories of runners or triathletes who have chosen to use SWORD? Yeah, yes, uh, several. I, I just give you a, a personal myself. I, I don't know if it's a really success story or not, but I knew we were on to something. I, I went down uh, after we had developed it. We'd been working on formulas and things for about a year, and we had a prototype together. And I did the uh, – uh, it was a 50-mile race down in Chattanooga. And I decided no nutrition other than this prototype sort. I'm not going to eat. I'm just going to drink this and see if I can make it to the end of the race. Felt fantastic through the whole thing. So I was hydrated and I was fueled and I felt good. So I knew that that we had we were on to something. Now, good runners that have actually used it and done well with it, Mike Bialik, um, if you've run Tunnel Hill, you know who Mike is. He's, he's won, won it several years. And he, he regularly trains and uses sword. And he was introduced to it by Steve Durbin at Tunnel Hill. I think might've been the first year he won it. He was struggling on the last 25 miles. He was getting an upset stomach and he was, he was using something else. And, and Steve convinced him to, to try some sword and he did and he liked it. And he, he approached us after that to see if, if we would supply it to him. And, and we did. So uh, he's been successful with it. You know, one of the best female marathoners in the country is regularly using it. Jordan Hesse, she she has, if you know anything about Jordan, she uh, ran the, the second fastest marathon by a woman, American woman in, in the United States. And she's really an accomplished, talented runner, and, and, and she's used it regularly. Locally, Zach Bevan, who, uh, you know, Zach, he ran for UK. He's from Louisville. He ran for cross country for UK. And he now he's graduated, lives in Lexington, worked with John's. A run walk shot. Zach ran, I believe, the fastest 50 miles uh, uh, in the country last year at Tunnel Hill. He, he's a really accomplished runner and has good success with it. So those are a couple of examples. Great. So just kind of wondering, you, you mentioned you're practicing again now in Owensboro. We're excited to have you. So under what circumstance would our listener call you? Like what kind of medical advice or why would we come to see you? I don't know if that's a very good question or not. But <laughs> I really like working with endurance. I do, so I do sports medicine still. Yes. And I really tend to, to work with a lot of endurance athletes because I've, I've run, like I said, for nearly 40 years now. And so I have a lot of experience with that. I know the aches and pains of running. I, I feel pretty confident with uh, the ones that you can run through. And so I try not to tell people they, they can't run. I rarely do that. And when I do, it's for a good reason, something like a broken femur, you know, a good reason for, for not running. <laughs> um, that would be one reason. I also do what's called lifestyle medicine, which is helping people manage, manage their health and trying to help people achieve the, the, the best health they possibly can. And I spend a lot of time talking about physical activity and nutrition and health habits and, and how those things really influence your quality of life and what's going to happen to you over the next 40 or 50 years, even to the extent of man helping manage chronic diseases like diabetes and hypertension and, and cardiovascular disease if you want to minimize your medication. So um, I, I try to help people do that. So you don't specifically work with just endurance athletes if someone is 350 pounds and just needs a lifestyle change? Is that someone you love to talk to that person? Because if, if they're really motivated to work on that, then what I've found is that there's there's just there's a lot of misinformation and bad information out there. And, and there's a lot of conflicting information. I think that's harmful. You know, uh, Internet's good. Internet's bad. Books are good. Books are bad. You, you get conflicting opinions. And so for the, the average Joe or Jane on the street, they'll see like the ketogenic diet's the greatest thing ever. The ketogenic diet's the worst thing ever. Well, it's neither. You know, if in some cases it, it may be very appropriate, in other cases it may not. Um, Mediterranean diet's the greatest thing ever. Mediterranean diet's not so good. What's the truth? You know, what how should how should we approach that? Intermittent fasting, I swear by it. Intermittent fasting, I hate it. You know, what's what's the truth? You got to individualize that to the person, to the needs of the person at the time. 
there's good information, there's bad information. I just like helping people sort through the, the good information and the bad information, helping them make decisions for themselves. You know, you've got to decide what health habits are important to you and what things you want to work on. And really what you just need is it's almost like being a coach. You, you guys coach triathlon and endurance runners. And I like to coach health. And so that's kind of what I really enjoy doing the most. Yeah. Are you familiar with Dr. Stacy Sims and her work on uh, women versus men athletes? Have you read any of her stuff? Some. I haven't read anything in depth, but there, you know, women and men are different. Yeah. She, one of the things, and of course, this is of interest to me, not just for myself, but for several of our athletes is one of her theories. And of course you read everything. So I don't know what's true and not true as women get older, that it's helpful to incorporate more protein into their nutrition and even somewhat into their race nutrition. I wondered if you had any insight into something like that. And again, personal opinion. So take it for what it's worth. Um, I, I think in your daily nutrition, adequate quality protein is important. It helps with recovery. It helps building muscle. You, you need it. You have to have, you know, you can have protein malnutrition if you don't have enough. So it's absolutely important. I think it's a little harder to make the case for race day. Again, it, I, some of it may come down to the, the distance that you're trying to try to race, but I think for the most part, if you're really racing, not only are you challenging your heart, your lungs, and your muscles, but you're also challenging your gut. And I think you need to keep the nutrition as simple as possible. So I would lean away from protein on race day. Okay. Yep. That's just, and again, that's personal opinion. And, you know, debating that is, you know, I think people have different opinions and it's okay. And if people are different, it may be that you perform better if you're taking in a little protein on race day. And it may be that I don't. So it's hard to make blanket statements and just paint everything with a broad brush. You have to be you have to be open that people are going to perform differently with different nutrition plans. Not everybody's built the same. Well, and that's why it's so important in what you do and what we do to build personal relationship and get that feedback ongoing to what's working and not working and make adjustments to customize services for that's a hundred percent right. Yeah. So my other question is a lot of conflicting information that I've read is the timing of protein. For example, I read that make sure you have a protein shake already ready and get something in your system within 15 minutes to a half hour after. And then others say, well, as long as your daily protein intake is adequate, the timing's not important. I'm wondering if you had any thoughts on that. Great questions. Uh, it's, you know, these are areas where you'll get some debate. People in the nutrition sciences, will, and they have good reasons for it. They'll give you plenty of this study says this and this study says that. Um, I, I think in general, if your complete daily nutrition is good, if you're taking an adequate amount of protein on a daily basis and you're distributing that well over the course of the day, then it becomes much less important what you do immediately post-workout. Mm -hmm. If you're cutting weight if you're, or you're, you know, if you're trying to lose weight, then it may be more, the, the timing of that protein intake may be more important if you're, if, if you're intake is borderline because you're, you're trying, you're, you're cutting back on your total calories. There's this idea that there is a window that's immediately after the workout where your body's most receptive to taking that protein and doing something constructive with it. Your metabolism is turned on in such a way that you're, you're going to benefit from protein in that window. That's where kind of the debate comes in. And there's some evidence that that's true. And there's some evidence that that's not as important if you're if your daily protein intake is adequate. And again, you've spread that out over the course of the day. So if you're going to take in, I'll, I'll make up a number. Let's say you're taking in 100 grams of protein a day. And if you take in 100 grams of protein at supper time and no protein the rest of the day, probably not a good idea because out of that 100 grams you've taken at supper, you can only incorporate, you can only use so much of it, 25%, 25 grams, 30 grams, something like that. And the rest of that, you're just going to either store as fat or you're going to burn it you're going to metabolize it. If you take 100 grams and you break it up into, into four 25-gram doses over the course of the day, then you do a better job of using that to keep your, your muscle-building machinery turned on all day long. So that's where timing becomes more important, I think. That's, that's the way I tend to look at it. Yeah, that makes sense to me. So Again, I could ask questions all night, but... <laughs> We may have to just do a podcast a week with you just because I love talking nutrition now. <laughs> I'd, I'd be happy to come back anytime and talk 
again, it's a lot of its opinion. So take it for what it's worth. Is there anything else that you wanted to bring up with our listeners? Um, no, not really. I mean, I, I think the one place that, that a lot of kind of weekend warriors or amateur athletes go wrong is we talked a little bit about it earlier is, is getting that, that right mix of proper training and proper recovery. And that's where I think coaching services are really can be important and can be really helpful. And I always like to use the example of cyclists, you know, they'll, they'll spend thousands of dollars to knock a couple of ounces off their bike, thinking they're going to speed up where they taken that same thousand dollars and spend it on coaching. They'll speed up a lot more. So I will kind of give a shout out or a nod to, to your service or coaching services out there that I think they, people don't, they feel like they're amateur athletes and they don't think they need a coach. Well, if they really want to improve their performance, that's probably the number one thing they can do, whether it's a strength coach or an endurance coach or a nutritional coach, somebody that can help them objectively look at what they're doing, where they're going wrong, where they should improve and what they need to work on. And it's, it's difficult to do that looking at yourself. You got to have somebody kind of, there's a little bit removed from it and be very objective about it. So I would encourage your listeners to think about getting a second opinion as getting a coach to at least look at what you're doing and work with you a little bit. And I think you'll see some gains. You rarely go wrong doing that. We couldn't agree more. (laughs) Thank you for the advertising. (laughs) No, I I think you're doing the right thing. I, I, I sincerely do. We enjoy it. We always like to share a scripture with our listeners and there are some scriptures that talk about if we come to Jesus, we'll never thirst again, but that's not what we're going to talk about today. John 15, 12 says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And we talked earlier about the duel in the sun and Dick Beardsley and Alberto Salazar. You know, we need to put people before performance. And the story goes that Beardsley was trying to hand Salazar water along the way, but he didn't want it. And we often see in marathons, the elite athletes sharing bottles. I'm not sure we would see that right now while we're in a <laughs> pandemic. But anyway, the thought is, is on track. And I just feel like we need to be willing to help others rather than take advantage of an opportunity. And that just exemplifies how Jesus wants us to treat one another. Just another thought I had was that we're talking about loving one another. We need both truth and love. And the Bible contains the truth, and God is love, and we're all thirsty for both truth and love. So we just need to share both of those with the world. And be kind to one another. Be kind to one another. <laughs> exactly. There's, there's not enough. There, I guess there can never be enough, but there's just there's not enough love and kindness and respect in the world. And that would solve so many issues if we just had those things. Yeah. And, and we, we took care of each other. Right. Scott, we really appreciate you being on the show, and we'll try to find a time to have you back. Well, I really enjoyed it, and I would I would love to come back. So uh, I hope to see you out on the road somewhere, maybe doing some training. Yeah. At RYR Endurance Team, we specialize in customized coaching. What is customized coaching? It's more than a training plan. It's a relationship. It's a partnership. So what are your goals? What are you training for? Contact us at ryrcoach at gmail.com or visit us on our website, ryrenduranceteam.com. Hey, if you enjoy our podcast, please do us a favor. Give us a five-star review and subscribe to our podcast. This helps others find us. Thanks for listening.